2: Plainly said Miss Brodie, you were not listening to me. If only you small girls would listen to me, I would make of you the creme de la creme.
3: The pleasure I get right away is the consummate style of the books, that I can hear two or three sentences and I know I'm reading a Muriel Spark book. And I don't think you can say that about
4: an awful lot of writers now. What's strange is it really does feel like the kind of airy, light institution that you recognise from the book. I mean, you can just picture the girls in their groups walking along these big corridors. The boys, as they talked to the girls from Marcia Blaine School, stood on the far side of their bicycles holding the handlebars, which established a protective fence of bicycle between the sexes, and the impression that at any moment the boys were likely to be away. That's the opening sentence of The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie by Muriel Spark, her extraordinary slim novel, which is set in the 1930s in an Edinburgh girls' school, and yet somehow manages to cover every aspect of life in just 120 pages. As Candia McWilliam writes in her introduction to the Penguin Modern Classics edition, the book is funny, short and about sex. It is also tragic, long in the mind and memory, and about war, cruelty Betrayal, and most of all, religion, theology, and even, though not always the same as religion or theology, God. At the centre of this book is the unforgettable figure of the junior school teacher, Miss Brodie, an entrancing, controlling, fascinating woman who was inspired by one of Sparks' own teachers. The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie has had hugely successful adaptations on stage and screen, but the novel is stranger, funnier and darker than any of them. Hello, and welcome to On the Road with Penguin Classics, the podcast that takes a stroll around the world's favourite books. I'm Henry Elliott, the author of the Penguin Classics book, and in this episode, I'm going to attend some of Miss Brodie's unconventional lessons on life, love, art, religion and history around the streets of Edinburgh. Well I'm standing now on Bruntsfield place, opposite number 160, which was Muriel Sparks, Muriel Camberg's childhood home in Edinburgh. And I'm delighted to introduce our guest for today's podcast episode, Alan Taylor. Alan, welcome. It's very nice to be here, Henry. The journalist Alan Taylor was, was born near Edinburgh and has written for Scotland on Sunday, The Sunday Herald, The Times Literary Supplement, The New Yorker, and many other publications. He was managing editor of The Scotsman and is the founding editor of the Scottish Review of Books. He has written for TV and radio, competed for many years on the BBC Radio 4's Round Britain Quiz, edited the extraordinary The Assassin's Cloak for Canongate, an anthology of diary entries from around the world. And he was also a close friend of Muriel Spark and recently published Appointment in Arezzo, a friendship with... Muriel Spark, Alan. It's such a pleasure to have you with us today. Uh, it's always wonderful
3: to be able to talk about Muriel. You know, who uh, somebody I've always admired, and whose work seems to me evergreen.
4: Well, we, we are really looking forward to our conversation today. In her um, one volume of autobiography that she wrote, *Curriculum Vitae*, the first sentence is. I am a hoarder of two things, documents and trusted friends. Yes. Now, she wrote that two years after meeting you, Alan, and you became <laughs> one of her trusted friends. So tell us about how you met her and, and how you became her friend.
3: Well, I went to interview her in Arezzo. Uh, she just published a, a new novel called Symposium. She hadn't been heard of very much uh, over the years. She didn't come back to Edinburgh very much. And I had an editor who was fed up with me interviewing of international literary stars, the Updikes, the vidals of the world, and said, isn't there somebody a bit closer to home? And I said, well, yes, there's, there's Muriel Spark. He said, oh, yes, she's, she's from Edinburgh. He said, that would be wonderful. I said, yeah, but she lives in Tuscany. <laughs> Nevertheless, to quote uh, Muriel, uh, he agreed for, for me to go to Italy and to interview her. And uh, Muriel accepted. She corresponded by facts and she wrote rather formally to say you know uh, my friend Penelope Jardine and I will meet you at the Continentale hotel in arezzo at 6 in the evening where we can talk
4: and that was the beginning of our friendship wow gosh i'm we'll talk about it more but your 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 memoir appointment in arezzo is such a warm-hearted you know you get such a <laughs> such a wonderful portrait of muriel from it
3: well i felt that she'd been unfairly dealt with um, people didn't seem to catch her character when they wrote about her they wrote about her wit the cruelty that she supposedly showed to her characters uh, her acerbic side and I thought well they were completely misunderstanding things they didn't realize
4: what people from Edinburgh are like (laughs) well I will hear more about that over the course of today so Alan we're standing opposite Muriel's childhood home now can you describe it for us how what does it look like today Well,
3: it's a very um, clean sandstone Victorian building, four storeys high. We're in the Morningside district of Edinburgh. There are shops along the street front. Um, And this is a very pucker part of Edinburgh. Um, Muriel's family, of course, were not well off by the standards of the area. Um, They would take boarders, for example, to help make ends meet. But uh, it was a very comfortable home, a very friendly home, very sociable home. It's a very short walk from here to her school. And it was also a very short walk in uh, going south along uh, Bruntsfield Place into Morningside. And you would come to Morningside Public Library. Which was so important. Hugely to important to her. It was at one time the busiest library in the world. Wow. And Muriel would walk back and forth from her house to the library to get armfuls of books. You could change them twice a day if you wanted to.
4: Wow. Wow. Um, and I remember and she Saturday. mentions how um, she would take her brother's library card as well and try and t- take his allocation. It was a common ruse of Edinburgh <laughs> people. <laughs> Fantastic. So, standing here, Alan, outside um, Muriel's childhood home, she writes in Curriculum Vitae that that ring at the door that I love so much, we can imagine the, uh, the doorbell going. And, in fact, we've just been standing out, outside the door, and her name is still on one of the doorbells.
3: It covers both bases. It says Camberg Spark. Camber was her uh, family name, and she became a spark when she married. And, yes, uh, 160 Brunsfield Place is where it all began. It was a very small flat. Uh, Her father was an engineer. Quite what kind of an engineer, we're not very clear. Uh, Her mother was a piano teacher uh, who uh, sort of tippled port throughout the day. Uh, She was a very sociable woman. Her mother, uh, who liked to see people, uh, she liked people to visit, as the ring of the door suggests. Yes. And she was a flirt. Uh, she wandered around the shops of uh, the area, flirting with the shopkeepers. Something that I have to say, Muriel herself, rather <laughs> than her. <to. laughs>
4: she has a great line of saying, I, "I was not set aside from adult social life, nor cozied up in a nursery. Um, I was witness to the whole passing scene." And you feel like even as a child, she was, she was taking note of everything. She around. was
3: taking note of everything and she said that to contrast that with other uh, children of the same age who went to private schools and who were kind of divorced from adult uh, mm-hmm. life, the mm-hmm. life of the street. Muriel wasn't divorced from that. She was fully immersed in it and she was a an eavesdropper, a watcher and I saw that quite often when I would go out with her. We would sit in a restaurant and, she, and I would say, about to say something, say, shh,
4: shh <laughs>
3: and Sure enough, there would be someone saying something to someone else that Muriel was noting for future oh, use.
4: Fantastic. Wow. Gosh, that's extraordinary. Well, talking about school, she first went to school at the age of five. Yes. And um, she describes how, from where I lived, the school was a ten-minute walk through avenues of tall trees. Yes. So let's, let's make that walk now and head towards her school. Good. So we've just moved away from Brunsfield Place now, and we're, we're about to start walking across uh, the little open patch of grass known as Brunsfield Links, where there's still, I think, a little there's golf a, course. There's
3: a little uh, pitch and putt course. Yeah,
4: where, in fact, I think Muriel used to play with her she, brother. She, she did, and I don't think she was a particularly good golfer,
3: Um She never talked about it to me. Muriel had a kind of romantic view of things and she would have imbued the the notion that Mary, Queen of Scots, uh, played golf. And Muriel, being red-haired and Scottish and an admirer of um, all things romantic, and
4: on top of that, a Catholic, would have thought, well, if Mary, Queen of Scots, did it, why shouldn't (laughs) I? That's brilliant. We can imagine her on this uh, little pitch and putt. Playing Mary Queen of Scots. In fact, look, this we're about to cross uh-huh. the links, and we're on we're on a path which has been, I think, quite recently named Muriel Spark Walk, presumably because this was a route she would take to school. Uh,
3: presumably, you yeah. can never tell can with never councils <laughs> if they've got the right path. But uh, it's interesting because, you know, she made much of these walks back and forth to school and walking mm. around Edinburgh. But she was the least um, athletic person I've ever come across. <laughs> she, she didn't really move
4: much at all. Uh, she was designed for limos. <laughs> uh, well, that's gosh, that's, you wouldn't get that impression from the Prime Ministerin Brodie, would you? Because there's a lot of walking. There's and, a lot uh, of walking, but in Edinburgh you have to walk. Yes. Um, you know, you can't cycle. It's a ridiculous place <laughs> for cyclists. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, let's let's walk along this um, Muriel Spark walk towards her school. She says in curriculum vitae. I loved crossing the links to school in the early morning, especially when snow had fallen in the night or was still falling. I walked in the virgin snow, making the first footprints of the day. The path was still lamplit, and when I looked back in the early light, there was my long line of footprints leading from Brunsfield Place, mine only. I loved the Brunsfield links in all seasons. And it's, you can see yeah. yeah, you can see through cracks in the buildings, part where the buildings
3: part, sort of glimpses of Salisbury Crags and uh, yeah. Arthur's Seat. Yes, you can. And
4: then, Arthur's Seat, of course, uh, the great craggy hill within the city of Edinburgh.
3: Yeah. And then as you go further, deeper into the links, you can see the castle begin to emerge. And what you get here, as opposed to Italy, where she moved to... You get in Italy. You get domes. Here you get spires, right. and you get this sort of jagged aspect, yes. which is a kind of Scottish thing. You know, like the the jagged thistles. You uh-huh. know, it, it adds an edge to the character. Um, domes round the character, and uh, you know, for a child with imagination like Muriel's, this was you know, history was everywhere.
4: Absolutely, it, you could really feel the drama of it this morning. And although it's not snowing, we're here on a On a chilly winter's morning and you can picture her walking to school about this time of day. And I see her with, you know, her school chums
3: uh, walking this path and uh, chatting and telling each other stories and whispering stuff in (laughs) their ear. Uh, You you know, she loved all that kind of conspiratorial thing that uh, an ear was for whispering into. You know, (laughs) don't say something out loud
4: if you don't have to. Protect it. Secrecy, mystery. Oh, fantastic. So we've just turned the corner and we're coming round to the really impressive frontage of what was Muriel's school. This used to be the building for James Gillespie's high school. And Muriel Kamburg came here as a pupil for for 12 years. She came at the age of five in 1923 and left in 1935. And... She writes, the schoolhouse had been built in 1904, first for another school, Burrowmuir. But Gillespie's took over in 1914. It was an Edwardian type of building, and for those days, modern inside, with large classrooms and big windows that looked out over the leafy trees, the skies and the swooping gulls of Brunsfield Lynx. And in fact, look, there is, on cue, a swooping gull <laughs> passing us right now. So, yes... And how would you describe this exterior? It's pretty grand, isn't it? It's pretty grand,
3: and as she said, it would have been modern in those days. Right. Uh, what I like about it in particular is its prospect. You know, yes. it's looking right across the landscape of Edinburgh. And I always think that that's important in a school. The kind of environment of a school is as important as what you're taught in it. You know, you get modern schools that are just so bland, you think you're not really encouraging people to sort of go at it with a bit of. Gusto. Yes, um, yes. So I think the, the impressiveness of the building encouraged the pupils to sort of uh, do well. And it was a, an ecumenical school, you know, all religions were here, that uh, had a very liberal attitude towards education. And I think that Muriel had the time of her life actually when she was here. I think her school years
4: actually were the best years of her life. Wow. Well, James Gillespie was an 18th century. Snuff merchant in in Edinburgh, and he left a bequest to found this school. And as you were saying, Alan, Muriel wasn't from an especially wealthy background. She described this school as providing educational services far beyond what the families were paying for. Yeah. Um, so that endowment meant that she could come and have a great education here Edinburgh's snobbery about
3: schools is without, you know know, it's very difficult to describe the extent of the (laughs) snobbery of Edinburgh schools I mean,
4: there are so many of them aren't there there are
3: so many of them and and you go to a dinner party and people say which school did you go to and um, there's ways of masking it but by and large they get you in the end and immediately exclude you uh, and uh, you have to be prepared for it in Glasgow, it's all about
4: which football team. Right. I <laughs> but it, I get the impression that Muriel was um, rather proud of having been to Gillespie's. Oh, without a doubt. She she was feisty. Mm. Um,
3: she loved her school. She wouldn't have anybody put it down. And the interesting thing is that I've met many Gillespie's girls, some from her era, some after, and they have a, an amazing attitude of mind. Mm. They, they, they have a composure that other... Uh, Girls don't have even from private schools. They have something was given them at Gillespies that sent them out into the, the Edinburgh Har uh, that made them uh, very self-assured and uh, confident of themselves. You know the the mantra now these days is
4: be the best you can be. Well, Gillespies gave that to girls many many decades ago. How incredible! Well. Today, this building is no longer the school. It's now accommodation attached to the University of Edinburgh. But the school still is going strong, and it's just around the corner from here. And we're going to be able to get to go inside this original building, the building that Muriel knew. So let's go around the corner and see if we can uh, find our way indoors.
2: I have frequently told you, and the holidays just passed have convinced me, that my prime has truly begun. One's prime is elusive. You little girls, when you grow up, must be on the alert to recognise your prime at whatever time of your life it may occur. You must then live it to the full.
4: So we've, we've just been let into the building and all the classrooms have been turned into student flats now, so we can't get into those, but we're walking up the staircase now and really... (laughs) You can imagine this as a school staircase, can't you? The tiles on the wall, which is passing an amazing tall window looking out onto the links. Gosh, it's rather... um, It's much more evocative than I was expecting, actually. It really does feel like a school. So we're stepping into the... Wow, look at this. stepping into the middle hall now. Wood-panelled area. What's strange is it really does feel like the kind of airy, light institution that that you recognize from the book. I mean, you can just picture the girls in their groups walking along these big corridors, and Miss McKay, the headmistress, walking amongst them. So, I feel like this is a perfect spot to talk about Miss Kay, Miss Christina Kay, who was one of Muriel's teachers here at Gillespie's there's a moment in um, curriculum vitae when she says but now I come to miss Christina Kay that character in search of an author and then later she says she entered my imagination immediately I started to write about her even then so Alan who was who was Christina Kay how does Spark remember her
3: well um she remembers her very vividly Uh, I think that passage Henry where she says and now I come to Miss Christina Kay it's like a curtain opening Mm. and suddenly the book is going to begin Uh Um, she was a single woman who lived with her mother and father quite nearby here Uh, she was a primary school teacher all her life uh, apparently very religious in the Mm -hmm. Presbyterian sense, Mm -hmm. and uh, she was uh, a very unconventional teacher. She wore cloche hats with a sort of fringed haircut, and she apparently had a sort of pronounced uh, dark (laughs) moustache. Yes. Um, I've met a few people who were taught by her. Right. And uh, they all say that Muriel's portrait of her in the prime of Miss Jean Brodie is spot-on. Um, Mm. She gets her eerily, accurately. Mm. Um, Miss Christina Kay would veer off the curriculum and uh, go into areas of her own interests. She would talk very enthusiastically, for example, about her summer holidays in Italy, about um, the artists that she uh, admired. Uh, She had a picture of Mussolini's Fascisti on the wall. She was apparently an admirer of uh, Mussolini. We're not sure how much of an admirer. I remember talking to one very elderly woman who said that uh, she couldn't really add very much to Muriel's portrait. And then she said, but I remember that on Friday afternoons she would sort of abandon normal lessons and have people come up to the front of the class and sing. (laughs) And um, if they sang, for example, The Flowers of the Forest about the great Scottish uh, disaster at Flodden, tears would come to her eyes. (laughs) So she had this sort of effect on pupils to make them think, well, yes, you're in a school, but you can feel things. You know, you can uh, judge things. You can look at a picture and say, well, you know, so-and-so is a better painter than so-and-so. She was very pronounced about that. And Muriel inherited some of that too. And one of the other things I loved about Miss Kay which she had, to, similarly to Muriel's mother, was she, she was always offering advice, <laughs> telling people what colours to wear, you know. <laughs> um, also saying, you know, um, you know, Edinburgh's so drab, you know, the best thing you can do is wear some decent colours to cheer <laughs> the thing up. That's the kind of thing her mother would say, the kind of thing Muriel would say. But really, um, beyond what Muriel writes about her, in the prime of Miss Jean Brodie and a few anecdotes that people have told me about her and others, um, we don't really know very
4: much about her. It's, it, it's so fascinating how this real teacher, Christina Kay, is translated into the character of Miss Jean Brodie yes. in the novel. It sounds like Christina Kay had this um, very strong view on education, but it was, it was a leading out yes. uh, rather than a putting in, which yes. is something that Muriel gives to... Uh, Miss Jean Brodie as well
3: well I think you know Muriel says and I, I think we must trust her she, she says that when she met Miss Kay when Muriel was just 11 suddenly she realized she'd been given something she thought whoa I've got a character here who's now in search of a novel and eventually I will write that novel but in the meantime I'm going to spend my years watching her and uh sort of imbibing uh, what Miss Kay was all about. And um, I think that thereafter, Muriel was just biding her time when she could write the novel. And, of
4: course, she came back famously to Edinburgh to write the novel so that she could feel it. I, d- so I didn't realise that, because she was living in New York at a time, yes. right? And so she, I didn't realise she'd come back to soak up the old... She came back and she stayed in the family house and she apparently wrote it in six weeks. (laughs) Yes, it's extraordinary. It's amazing. (laughs) So let's talk about this character, Miss Jean Brodie, who dominates the novel and is, well, one of the most famous characters in in literature. It's very well known. Beyond what we've said about Christina Kay already, how would you describe Miss Brodie to her?
3: Well, uh, terrifying (laughs) is one word you could use. Charismatic is another. Charming uh, is another. Mm. Um, She was a very complicated character. Yes. And uh, on the one hand, she could almost hypnotise her students, make them want to learn. Mm. Uh, But on the other hand, she was misteaching them and sending them off in the wrong direction specifically to do with fascism and Mussolini. Uh And as we find as the novel progresses, um, some of the girls take a wrong path, thanks to the teachings of Miss Brodie. I always thought it was very interesting that Muriel says in Curriculum Vitae that she doesn't know where she got the name Jean Brodie from. Hmm. And I never challenged her on that, and I really should have. There's lots of things I should have said to her, but that's the one that really irks me. Because you think, well, first of all, if you're going to have a name, an archetypal name for a Scottish woman, you call her Jean. Everybody <laughs> was called yes. Jean there. Yeah. But Brodie was, you know, Deacon Brodie, uh, who uh, was a respectable man by day and a, an arch criminal by night. So he was a two-sided element. People think he might have been a model for... Jacqueline Hyde of a Stevenson story. Exactly, and therefore, so is Miss Jean Brodie. She, on the one hand, is this great, charismatic uh, teacher. On the other, she's quite malign. And a uh, uh, number of people who've said to me, oh, I wish I had a teacher like Jean Brodie. I say, what?
4: <laughs> but you're right, it's that combination of... She's such a, an interesting character because there are so many facets to it. And w- one of the ambiguities of her character is... It's a mixture of confidence and vulnerability. That on the one hand, she's supremely confident in her own opinions and what she's telling her pupils. And, you know, she says her famous line is that all my pupils are the creme de la creme. Yes. Which apparently was one of Christina Kay's lines as well. And, you know, she says, give me a girl at an impressionable age and she is mine for life. Something both supremely confident and quite terrifying about that. It's
3: terrifying. I I think it's musically brilliant, these sentences. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think, yeah, she was
4: a very vulnerable person. Well, almost there's a vulnerability in that confidence, isn't there? Because she says quite near the beginning of the novel, she says, uh, as for impropriety, it could never be imputed to me except by some gross distortion on the part of a traitor I do not think ever to be betrayed. And instantly you think, Oh gosh, maybe she could be betrayed, and that becomes one of the threads of a novel: is someone is going to betray Miss Brodie, and who is it going to be?
3: Exactly, and it was something that Muriel herself had. You know, she valued loyalty very highly. Um, friends who said things behind your back or did things um, against you uh, were no longer friends. The other thing is that, of course, school teachers are not meant to have favourites. <laughs> But Miss Brodie, as did Miss Kay, did have their favourites. The, these were the ones they would take to concerts, uh, to lectures, to poetry readings, to tea. Um, and that would be a complete no-no now. Yes, yes. Um, but uh, in those days, th- they were part of the set, and Muriel was part of the set. She felt favoured. And on top of that, she had sort of marked herself out in the school Muriel had as um, the school's poet and dreamer. She was called the school's poet and dreamer and Miss Kay told her, you must be a writer. And yes. Muriel said, I hardly had any choice in the matter. You think, wow, imagine saying that to a school kid. You yes. will be a
4: writer. And, and that's um, very like Miss Brodie, isn't it? There's a, there's a line where she says um, she couldn't imagine any of her girls not having a strong vocation later in life. And, and that, you know, that's what Christina Kay gave to Muriel.
2: It is time now to speak of the long walk through the old parts of Edinburgh where Miss Brodie took her set, dressed in their deep violet coats and black velour hats with the green and white crest, one Friday in March, when the school's central heating system had broken down and everyone else had been muffled up and sent home. The wind blew from the icy forth and the sky was loaded with forthcoming snow.
4: Perhaps now is a good time to talk about one of the most iconic sequences from the novel, which is the walk that Miss Brodie takes her girls on. There are six chapters in the novel, and most of the second chapter is taken up with this this sequence. So, Alan, let's, uh, let's follow in their footsteps. Let's go on this walk with Miss Brodie and her set. Great. The Brodie set, as they're called. But perhaps we should talk about who they are, because... Really, alongside, well, sort of around Miss Brodie, they form the core of the the heart of the novel. They're introduced at the beginning of the book as all being famous for something. Yeah, famous (laughs) for sex, etc. So, Rose Stanley is famous for sex, although that's actually rather unfair, you come to realise. Monica Douglas, famous for mathematics. Eunice Gardner, famous for gymnastics. Jenny Gray, famous for being pretty. Poor Mary McGregor, who's famous for being stupid. <laughs> and is really rather the sort of the butt of um, the group. And then Sandy Stranger, who in many ways, we see a lot of the novel through her eyes. Yeah. And, and in fact, she is described as being famous for having small eyes at the yes. beginning. Well, she's a fascinating character, isn't she, Sandy? Because you could read the book and feel like... I just think it's She's close to an autobiographical portrait because she's a writer in the making, she sort of looks at the world through the fiction that she's been reading um, she converts to Catholicism as Muriel did herself, but it's more complicated than that I think. It is, I mean she's she's obviously perceptive as well Sandy mm.
3: Stranger, she sees things that the other girls might not see um, she's sort of is in a way kind of more rounded um, but the Famous for the small eyes, there's there's a sort of mean element to her. Um, And I once asked Muriel about Sandy Stranger, because as you say, Henry, a lot of people have assumed that in the search for sort of autobiographical connections, Uh that Sandy Stranger equals Muriel Spark. Well, Muriel Spark said to me that she thought Sandy Stranger was a little bitch. (laughs) And uh, I don't think Muriel kind of thought that there was a sort of flattering connection between her and the character, the pupils themselves are very interesting kind of types. Um, yes. And schoolgirl types. And I think it's interesting that these six types were chosen by Miss Brodie as, as hers to manipulate
4: in some ways, you know, give me a girl at a tender age. Yes, and she's mine for life. Yes, and there's a sense in which she fixes them in the types that they're that she wants them to have. You know, there's a moment, in fact, on this very walk that happens in Chapter 2, when Sandy considers being nice to Mary McGregor, the, the yeah. stupid one, and then realises that that would spoil the sort of dynamic of the group. And so she says, out of good fellowship, I was mean to her. <laughs> and it's, it's such a strange idea, but you can sort of... It's a really telling moment talking about the dynamic of this group, where they all have their, their role and they they play to it. And there's an an element
3: too with Muriel where she turns this into into sort of music because she'll repeat these things, you know, Mm. that that, Mm. that she'll return to the the girls and tell you again what they were like lest you forgot them, or as if it's a a kind of a chorus that she's got going through the book. And she makes uh, a virtue of what other writers would uh, resist, which is repetition. Uh, That's not a problem in Muriel Sparks' world. Repetition is good. Because uh, the border ballads, um, the Scottish border Mm. ballads, were a huge influence on
4: her. And and they are full of repetitions, you know. Yes. uh, Like a song, a chorus. There's a line in the book where Muriel describes the formation of this set, where she says, Miss Brodie's special girls were taken home to tea and bidden not to tell the others. They were taken into her confidence. They understood her private life and her feud with the headmistress and the allies of the headmistress. They learned what troubles in her career Miss Brodie had encountered on their behalf. It is for the sake of you girls, my influence now in the years of my prime. And this was the beginning of the Brodie set. And gosh, actually just reading that again, there's such manipulation there, isn't there? Of this teacher in a position of power telling them that, you know, I'm facing all these problems, but it's for your sake, I'm doing it for you. And yes. your, there's a responsibility put on them there and...
3: But, but it's almost like they've sort of sworn to become a, a sort of blood brother type right uh, yes association. Yes. I've often thought a sort thought, of cult a sort of secret yeah, cult. Uh, yes, what's said here stays here. Yes, uh, this is just for you girls, and I've often mm. thought that other books like <laughs> I don't know the famous Five books of mm. Edith Blyton or something mm. are, are based on these Muriel Spark ideas that well we have these uh, groups of children who are all sworn to stick together and. Uh, keep their secrets and don't pass on stuff and, and Muriel was like mm. this she gave my two children in Italy two notebooks with uh, I think it was mystery and secrets uh, written on the cover wow. and uh, she said to uh, my daughter when you get to the customs at Dover or wherever it was we were coming back Yeah. and she said keep the notebook hidden don't, don't let the custom man see it <laughs>
4: uh, I love that
2: They were crossing the meadows, a gusty expanse of common land, glaring green under the snowy sky. Their destination was the Old Town, for Miss Brodie had said they should see where history had been lived, and their route had brought them to the Middle Meadow Walk.
4: So we've just crossed the road and we're, we're now entering the, the area known as the meadows... This is the route that the girls walk with Miss Brodie. I guess it can't have changed that much. Hardly at all. Since that that same day, yeah. And it's on Middle Meadow Walk, which we're about to get to, that they pass a group of girl guides. And let me find it, because it's one of my favourite lines of uh, Miss Brodie, when she says, um, For those who like that sort of thing, said Miss Brodie in her best Edinburgh voice, that is the sort of thing they like. <laughs> and you <she laughs> know immediately that she disapproves hugely of Girl guys.
3: It's, it's wonderful. I mean, it's such a put-down. <laughs> yes. But you, you think, well, where did all these wonderful phrases come from? Creme de la creme, mm-hmm. the set, etc. Well, it can only have come from Christina Kay and yes. has, have lodged in Muriel's memory. Um, and the novel among other things, is, is, a, is a sort of great act of memory, of evocation, you know, that mm. by coming back to Edinburgh to write it she was trying to catch the sort of nuances of Edinburgh's speech and the, the way people think. Muriel used to resent people calling her an English novelist not because she thought there was anything wrong with being an English novelist she just thought it, it was inaccurate <laughs> and that she said she was Scottish by formation and mm. What she meant by that, I think, was that in her way of thinking, in the way she spoke, and then in the way she wrote, she could only be Scottish. This, that kind of way <laughs> yes. of writing a sentence is, is, is uniquely Scottish. And it's difficult to explain, actually. You can only read the book and listen for yourself yeah, yes. to the rhythms of sentences.
4: Now, it's at about this point on Middle Meadow Walk that Sandy just starts... We start to get the impression that actually this Brodie set might not be entirely a healthy thing. And how does that work, Alan? How do we start to... um... She begins to see through Miss Brodie. Yes.
3: And that she's not this kind of holy, good thing, this great, generous person giving of herself. That there is a malign aspect to her. Mm. And Sandy, first of all, begins to sense it. And... It, in a way, it's like Sandy is you know, on the cusp of adulthood. She's coming to the point where she is thinking for herself. In a way, this is what Miss Brodie's wanting these girls to do, but now
4: it's rebounding on her. It, it, it goes, It occurred to Sandy, there at the end of the Middle Meadow Walk, that the Brodie set was Miss Brodie's fascisti, not to the naked eye marching along, but all knit together for her need and in another way marching along. And this occurs to her while, in fact, they are marching along all together. And, and there is that sense in which Miss Brodie is, is cultivating them and helping them, you know, leading them out through education, but there is also the sense in which she's cultivating them to be her kind of bodyguard, her sort of her protection of the school.
3: Yeah, they're, they're like a praetorium guard, that, right. that kind of thing. Right. Although she despises the girl guides and their uniforms and all. These girls are meticulous in their uniforms.
4: Yes. They've got yes. their own uniforms. Yes. Yes, exactly. It's, it's, yes, that's rather a sort of... There's an irony. An irony. Yes, yeah. that is an ironic moment. Miss Brodie's interest in fascism sort of develops over the course yeah. of the book. She, she has posters of Mussolini and the Fascisti. but then as Hitler comes to power in Germany, her sort of affections slightly transfer and she's yeah. sort of much yeah. more impressive in Germany, but, you know, much more organised than in Italy. <laughs> Um, and then, of course, with the Spanish Civil War, that also plays an important part in the book. The problem
3: also is that you know it 's easy to sort of denigrate um, miss brodie's admiration for Mussolini, which we can do well in hindsight. but at that point, people hadn 't really quite understood the implications of what he was up to that mm. Italy was a dirt poor country, and here was somebody trying to elevate it, to find work for people, to have a massive building programme, to have the trains run on time. Yes, as she said, the trains will run on time now, Um, yes. And, you know, she's also clearly sort of turned on by the the fascists' uniforms and their marching and all this kind of posturing.
4: Yes, and the Um, performative element of it, yes.
3: Um, So, the, 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 the thing is, you just can't sum her up.
4: Yeah, yeah. No, if you want, you can go this way and round. Let's do that. Yeah, let's head this way.
1: For Memorial Day, get 15% off your borough purchase at burrow.com/acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That’s up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com/acast.
2: They approached the old town, which none of the girls had properly seen before because none of their parents were so historically minded as to be moved to conduct their young into the reeking network of slums which the old town constituted in those years. The Cannon Gate, the grass market of the lawn market, were names which betokened a misty region of crime and desperation.
3: It's wonderful, it's a, just a wonderful description. It, it sort of suggests just how powerfully poverty-stricken Edinburgh was at that particular time. And yeah. it, it wasn't just that these parents were not historically minded. They probably weren't. But at the same time, they would be aware that this was a no-go area. Don't head in this direction. Bad things are down there.
4: So there's a kind of uh, bravery and almost sort of foolhardiness of, of Miss Brodie marching in with this, this set of girls in their immaculate matching uniforms, being a real target for... Um, Abuse, which gets shouted at them, and um,
3: well, I always see them as kind of 19th-century English explorers going up the Orinoco <laughs> in their kind of perfectly pressed khaki and uniforms. <laughs> yes, they're going to visit anthropologically
4: uh, yes. tribes that are yet to be discovered. Gosh, there is there is a, a sense of that, and this is an amazing approach to um, you know the, the castle is rearing up above us on its rock. And we're, we're heading down a flight of steps now into the grass market. And I, I think these steps have been renamed Miss Jean Brody's Steps, I have a feeling. I think there might be a sign at the bottom. I think because in the film adaptation, there's a, a moment where Maggie Smith leads the Brody set down these steps into the grass market.
2: Now they were in a great square, the grass market, with the castle which was, in any case, everywhere, rearing between a big gap in the houses where the aristocracy used to live. It was Sandy's first experience of a foreign country, which intimates itself by its new smells and shapes and its new poor. A man sat on the icy-cold pavement. He just sat.
4: It's such a strange and yet familiar idea that actually, in your home city you can step a few streets away and it can be a totally different world. Edinburgh is full of villages. And uh, if you live in one particular village, say
3: Portobello, you might not ever go to Stockbridge. And all of these are very well defined and have their own characteristics. And that's what Muriel is saying there, that Mm. these girls, and Sandy in particular, saying, well, you've now entered a foreign country. Mm. It's like they've gone to Naples for the day. Right, right. And suddenly, you know, they're confronted with people that they just don't, kind Of recognise as their own people, uh-huh. but the smells would be powerful. Edinburgh's always been a smelly city, uh-huh. you know. I mean, Old
4: is, yeah.
3: Old Ricky and it was called Old Ricky for, of course, the smoke from the chimneys from the coal fires, but also from the innumerable breweries there were in the town. Even when I was a boy, you could get drunk just smelling the beer, <laughs> and it, it, it had that kind of smelly atmosphere about it, Edinburgh.
4: You know, today grass market where we're standing. You know, I can see glass-fronted offices and some rather smart-looking restaurants and it's a kind of convivial touristy spot but it's, we've suddenly come quite low. We've been high up all through the the walk so far. Now we've suddenly sort of dropped down. We're really in the shadow of the castle here And, and as you point out in Appointment in Arezzo there's a pub on the grass market called The Last Drop because this is where public hangings took place in Edinburgh and you can sense every you know, especially maybe still in the 30s, and even a little... Now there's something a bit uncanny thinking about that, that this was a, a place of public execution. Well, I think Miss Brodie goes on to talk about the unemployed, and she said they were just mm. called the idle. Mm. And,
3: you know, this... Even for somebody so kind of open in a way and liberal and who'd been around the world a bit, this judgmental view of things to say, well, look at them, they're doing nothing. Mm. These children are just the idle. Uh, you know, and th- this was a scene of public executions. There were actually markets where um, farmers could come and buy uh, female labour, uh, uh, like slave labour. Wow,
4: wow, like in Hardy's of yes, Astrovich, like, right? Right, like in Hardy. Gosh. And there would
3: be fights and drinking. And oh, when I used to come down here in my 20s, you know, it, it was a pretty tough place. <laughs> you know,
4: a, a night in the grass market. <laughs> Well, this is where Miss Brodie leads the girls. And then it's not quite clear where they go, but they, they head up towards the high street. So let's, let's do that now. We're looking up at the castle. Let's head up to Lawn Market and the high street. Well, we've climbed up out of the grass market, right to the top of the Royal Mile. And, gosh, had a look at the views there over the Firth of Forth. You've got oh, what all. an incredible morning. Look at, you know, the sun's shining through these huge banks of cloud. It's really looking stunning today.
3: Well, you have the Pentland Hills over there uh-huh. to the south, you know. Muriel says,
4: you know, these were Robert Louis Stevenson's hills and they were mine. Oh. You know? Gosh, that's nice. And I was thinking at this point, Anna, I was, wanted to ask you about that tone that we've discussed in, in all Muriel's novels, but especially Private Miss Jean Brodie. We've talked about the musicality... Uh-huh. But how would you describe the narrative voice of Prime of Brodie? Because it's very unusual when you, it's, when you read the book.
3: Well, it's very assured. Yes. Um, you know, in Edinburgh, a kind of word that defines Edinburgh is superior. And uh, it has that air to it as well. It's cool, but has a sort of comic edge.
4: I think one of the ways in which the narrator feels particularly assured is um, the way that she plays with time through the yes. novel. Yes. So, for instance, at the very beginning of the book, we're in 1936, but we immediately revert six years to the first time the girls arrive at the school, so we go back to 1930. And and then time jumps around, and, and especially there are these moments, these flash-forwards to glimpses of what's going to happen in the future of these girls, which Candy McWilliams, she calls them sickening glimpses of the future. Good phrase, I think, because it's... Brilliant. Um, there, there's some... Well, yet, how would you describe those flashes forward? Because they're very unusual, I'd I'd say, in narrative terms, but they work so effectively in this book.
3: Well, they're difficult to describe because they seem to come out of nowhere and suddenly it's it's as if Muriel's saying, look, this is a book and I'm just going to give you a hint of what's to come, but in the meantime we'll go back again and then we'll go forward and then we'll go back again. And, And what I think is, apart from anything else, is... She's taking massive risks. She's hoping to take the reader with her. Yes. And so in in sort of projecting forward and then going back, retracing, she's making assumptions that the reader is going to make that commitment and come with her and be imaginatively on her side. And that, I think, is one of the great things about her work in general, that she is willing to take these risks. Yes. It's another reason, I think, for example... Why the book is so relatively short? A heck of a lot happens in that book, mm. but in terms of words, it's it's pretty short, and because it's short, it allows her to control these time shifts in yes. her head, you know. And the very fact that she wrote it so quickly also aids that. It's like it's a short story.
4: Uh-huh. It, and she it, can hold it all. She can hold it in her head. Time. There's um on page 14 we're told that. Mary, the the stupid member of the set, we're told that at the age of 23 she lost her life in a hotel fire. And suddenly that just, in one sentence, as Candy McWilliams says, it's sickening. You suddenly can see what's going to happen to her. It is
3: sickening, and and some people have interpreted that that kind of thing as cruel. I think it's the opposite of that. It's an incredibly compassionate way of looking at it. Mm. And that not being sentimental doesn't mean to say you're not caring. And and this is a kind of silly, childish way of looking at things. Mm. And we have become too childish as readers. And and we don't understand that human life is difficult, the world can be unbelievably cruel, and people can disappoint you. Yes, yes. And and the the, the other thing is that when we sort of talk about these kind of serious matters and and what a book is about, philosophy, religion, politics, her prime objective is to give pleasure. And uh, if she doesn't give pleasure, then the whole business has been worthless. Mm. And so if you do not read a Muriel Spark book and get pleasure for it, go somewhere else. (laughs) But the very fact is that the pleasure comes in lots of different ways. And the the pleasure, I forget right away, is the consummate style of the books that I can hear two or three sentences and I know I'm reading a Muriel Spark Mm. book.
4: Mm. And I don't think you can say that about an awful lot of Mm. uh, writers now. Well, I, I, I think a reader would be hard-pressed not to find pleasure in a Muriel Spark novel, because they are marvellous. And the, another thing about these flashes forward is that there's this almost a Catholic sense of fate in them. Yes. And, and you know, once you know that's going to happen to Mary, you're just waiting to see how you get there. And there's a sense in which Muriel was given this fate as a, she would be a successful writer, and it was just how she got to that position.
3: Exactly, and I think even when the success of The Prime Miss Jean Brody became so phenomenal, and that the impositions on her were becoming intolerable, she herself knew what she must do to go on being a writer. She could have stuck around in New York and been fated and famous and gone on celebrity chat shows and gone to parties and had lots of money and all the rest of it, but she knew she had to leave. Mm-hmm. If
4: Otherwise, she would have been ruined as a writer. Well, let's talk a bit more about Edinburgh as a city, because for... Muriel Spark, who was born here and raised here, and, and as we've heard, went to school here. Of all her novels, *Prime Minister Brodie* is set in Edinburgh. I don't think any of the others are. No, none, none is. Um, m- many set in London and other locations, but this is her Edinburgh novel. This is the Edinburgh novel. The Edinburgh novel. <laughs> she also wrote about Edinburgh as a place from which she was excluded. She wrote an essay called *What Images Return*, in which she wrote, "It was Edinburgh that bred within me the conditions of exile." And what have I been doing since but moving from exile to exile? It has ceased to be a fate. It has become a calling. How do you interpret that, Alan? In what sense was Muriel an exile from this city? She she
3: wasn't a sort of inveterate traveller in the sense that she wanted to live in different places all the time. But she wanted to see different places. She didn't want to be hemmed in by Edinburgh. And I think by the time she got to the age of 17 or 18, she decided, I have to spread my wings. This place is constricting me. Um, I'm not growing anymore. She felt like she'd used it up. She'd um, got from Edinburgh what she thought she could get from it, and now it was the time to see the rest of the world. And when the chance was given to her to do that, she seized it, and it was a disaster.
4: And I suppose later in life, another thing that made Edinburgh a complicated place for her was that her son lived here, and their relationship sounds very tricky, relationship, right? No, it was a tricky
3: relationship, and um, I think she's been unfairly portrayed uh, in some quarters as a kind of heartless mother, for example. I don't think she was particularly maternal, but at the same time, she loved her son very much. Uh, The the truth of the matter is that she married a man she shouldn't have married. He was completely unsuitable. Um, She realised he was dangerous, um, not only to her, but to her son. She fought for custody for him in Rhodesia, but it was a very patriarchal society. Custody was given to the father, and Muriel didn't have care of her own son. She, however, paid for him to be educated, paid for him to be uh, brought up by her parents back here in Edinburgh, and tried as much as she possibly could to be involved in his life and the documents all sort of substantiate that. But um, I think Robin, her son, came to believe that his mother had somehow rejected him and um, they were reconciled from time to time but ultimately they parted ways and um, it was an extremely upsetting business both for
4: her and for him. I'm sure, I'm sure.
2: They had nearly all been in St Giles with its tattered, blood-stained banners of the past. Sandy had not been there and did not want to go. The outsides of old Edinburgh churches frightened her. They were of such dark stone, like presences almost the colour of the castle rock, and were built so warningly with their upraised fingers.
4: Gosh, wow, it's stunning. So we're just stepping into this extraordinary St. Giles' Cathedral with beautiful stone-arched ceilings and and uplit columns, the greatest, yeah, the main Presbyterian church in Scotland. Well, let's talk a little bit about religion in the novel. Um, we heard at the beginning that Candy McWilliam thinks that religion and theology are two of the key strands of this book. And it definitely feels like it's it's close to the surface in the novel. There's a moment where Miss Brody is described as always going to church on Sunday mornings and she would kind of move around the different denominations around Edinburgh except for Roman Catholic she <laughs> she didn't approve of Catholicism um, but there's a moment where Sandy th- is thinking about Miss Brodie and says she thinks she is Providence thought Sandy she thinks she is the God of Calvin she sees the beginning and the end and there, and Miss Brodie has quite often been seen as a as a version of the Calvinist God someone who totally assured of who are the saved and who are the damned.
3: Absolutely. She, uh, doubt is not part of her religion, <laughs> um, uh, which is very interesting. Uh, another interesting aspect of Miss Brodie is that for such a lover of Italy, um, one part of Italy that she doesn't accept is religion. Yes. Right. Um, so uh, Catholicism is the religion she avoids, but Italy is the place where it is, of course, most palpable. Yes. Um, I mean, there's so many interesting contradictions about Miss Brodie that you just cannot pin her down. And maybe Miss Brodie was searching for something that she found difficult to to sum up in one religion.
4: I mean, the other sort of... um, Sparks' father was Jewish. Her mother was Presbyterian. Muriel was baptised into the Church of England in 1953 and then into the Catholic Church in 1954. So she went on quite a journey herself.
3: Yeah, but in a a way, a sort of predictable journey once (laughs) you were in the uh, Anglican Church. Yes, uh, yes. You know, it was a fairly short step to become a a Catholic. And she had read the um, autobiography of Cardinal Newman and that had impressed on her how Mm -hmm. that journey might be made. But having said all that... She was really quite a pick and mix Catholic um, <laughs> in the sense that the Pope would not approve of many of her views, <laughs> right. um, you know, and things like abortion, etc. Uh-huh. Among the things she liked about the Catholic Church were many of the things she didn't like about the Presbyterian Church, which was, was colour, right. smell, music, theatricality, art, yes, yes, all of that. Kind of yes. th- the theatre was mm. a big part of mm. it. And,
4: and of course, it was the novelist Penelope Fitzgerald who said that. Um, It wasn't until Muriel became a Roman Catholic that she was able to see human existence as a whole, as a novelist needs to do, and it's interesting that she began writing novels after that conversion. I
3: I think Muriel herself saw that. Uh That um, suddenly she realised what her place in the world was. Uh, I mean, at the beginning of Curriculum Vitae, she says that one of the reasons she's writing the book is to try and find out who she is. Mm. And... I think that's true for a lot of writers, but Muriel went about it in a much more unusual way than most, in the sense that she was trying to find out who she was through religion, and that the Catholic Church gave her that door through which she could walk. And suddenly, when she was settled in who she was,
4: she could then write books. Interesting. So we've walked down Southbridge and we're turning onto Chambers Street. In in the book, uh, it says their walk had brought them into Broad Chambers Street. Just before we head down it, just across the way there is a branch of Blackwell's bookshop. But am I right, Alan, that used to be the bookseller and stationer's James Thinn? It, it definitely did, yes. And, that, um, and I think that Muriel wrote all her novels in in jotter pads that she bought from Thins, right? uh, She
3: would buy them uh, in bulk, um, spiral-bound ones. Right. And uh, she knew how many pages she needed to write to make a novel. Right. And so she was very economical good in that system. way. She knew that if she said cover 12 notebooks, she had a novel. Right. Uh, so when she heard that the company who made them were going to stop making them, uh, she, she mentioned this in a newspaper Article and she was inundated. People sent their Bothwell uh, spiral, spiral? Oh, to wow. her so she
4: wouldn't run out. Oh wow, amazing! But it
3: was a great bookshop as well. Um, you know, there was a kind of bookshop where, if you won a prize at school, you would go to get a book. Right, um,
4: and it was it was only sold in 2002, not that long ago. Really. Yeah, it's
3: very sad. Uh, you know, James Tinsley was an Edinburgh institution, mm. and uh, you know, of course, Blackwell's a good bookshop, but. It doesn't have the same resonance. No,
4: the same association. Well, let's walk along Broad Chambers Street now. And really, towards the beginning of the book, but but certainly as the book goes on, there's a sense of creeping anxiety, a sense of creeping disorder, that things are getting out of hand. And, you know, combined with these flash-forwards that we've discussed already, you, you sort of sense that all this... Not going to end happily necessarily. And um, there's a moment where Sandy says, Sandy had the definite feeling that the Brody set, not to mention Miss Brody herself, was getting out of hand. Yeah. Something really ingrained and sort of institutionalized in yeah, this they sort of relationship.
3: They were coming to the end of their school years. Adulthood was waiting. Um, also, by now, I think you have to remember that if you're talking seven years hence, you're getting towards the cusp of the Second World War. We're getting very clear about what's been happening in Europe, that people will know about the persecution of the Jews, the concentration camps, what Hitler's really up to, and the kind of importance of the outside world is beginning to impinge on this kind of quite parochial backwater. And also, I think, uh, even in a place like Edinburgh, this would have been felt among the Jewish community, but also mm. among the Italian community and amongst the, the sort of the general population anyway. And so I think what
4: she's reflecting there is a kind of wider doom. Mm. Mm. Well, let's keep walking along Chambers Street and talk about the publication of The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie. It was published in The New Yorker. Yes. In October 1961, and the editor, William Shawn devoted almost the entirety of, a, of yeah. an issue to printing a very slightly abridged version of the whole novel, yes. which had only, that had only happened once before. Why is it, do you think, that this is the novel that she's best remembered for?
3: Well, it's a very good question in a way. Um, I think it, it did make a very big splash when it was published in The New Yorker. It was the first fictional book to be published almost in its entirety, it is a coming-of-age story. It is about something we can all relate to, our school days. I think it's unbelievably atmospheric and people could relate to this place that they might not have been to but could picture in their minds. We, we need to remember that you know Muriel had already earned her spurs by this point. This was her sixth novel.
4: Right, and yes. already
3: she was acclaimed as a very high-performing writer. You know, she'd written *Memento Mori* already. Uh-huh. The comforters, the *Ballad of Peckham Rye*. Right. You know, she was admired by Graham Greene and Evelyn Waugh, among others. Uh-huh. Um, people recognised that here was an unusual talent, uh, a rather unique voice. They could sense that somebody had burst upon them. Mm. That when she first won the Observer short story competition with *The Seraph in the Zambezi*, she won in the teeth of an amazing opposition. There were hundreds, if not thousands, of entries of that competition. And the whole of Literary London was absolutely staggered that this unknown person should win this prize when there were so many established names going in for it. Uh So, bang, she arrived out of nowhere. Like Byron, she awoke one morning and found herself famous. And so, by the time of the Prime Miss Jean Brodie, she'd learned what her art was. She knew what writing involved... And the prime of Miss Jean Brodie, to an extent, was her biding her time, waiting for the moment when she could write her great book, the book mm. that she had to write about Edinburgh. But how was she going to do that?
4: How, how, how interesting, yes, because she, she had this character that she'd known from childhood. And, and what the discipline to, to think I wait till I'm a good enough writer to do it justice? She
3: had the character, mm. now she'd gone in search of the novel. Uh-huh. And she'd found the novel. But I think we must remember, Henry, that in you know, 1961, when the book came out, the Second World War was finished. We'd been through the Nuremberg trials. Suddenly the world was aware of the effects of fascism, Mussolini and Hitler. And so Muriel had all that background yes, yes. To, to, to draw on. Um, you know, one of the most remarkable things about the prime of Miss Brodie is because of the way you read it, you think it must have been written in the 1930s. Right. It's not. It was written in the yes, 1960s yes. when, you know, the Beatles are about to hit us.
4: Yes. Yes, that is extraordinary. And there's that chilling line where an elderly Miss Brodie, post the Second World War, looks back and says, well, yes, Hitler was rather naughty, wasn't he? Yeah. And you sort of suddenly see the blinkers that she's got on. It's just... I know. And, of course, it's gone on to have an extraordinary afterlife in terms of adaptations on on stage and screen. There was the, the 1966 stage version, which starred Vanessa Redgrave uh-huh. as Miss Jean Brodie. That transferred to Broadway in 1968. And then, of course, in 1969, the film adaptation with Maggie Smith, who won an Oscar for Best Actress. And it is an extraordinary performance. Amazing. But it's interesting that it's this novel that has had so many adaptations, whereas her other novels, not, not so much.
3: Well, one goes back to Joseph Heller uh, when he was asked, you know, why hasn't he written other novels as good as Cash 22? He said, well, who has? Yeah,
4: few will, few, <laughs> yeah. Few,
3: few will, yeah.
2: <laughs> they had come to the end of Lauriston Place, past the fire station, where they were to get on a tram car to go to tea with Miss Brodie in her flat at Church Hill a very long queue of men lined this part of the street. They were without collars in shabby suits. They were talking and spitting and smoking little bits of cigarette held between middle finger and thumb. In England, they are called the unemployed. They are waiting to get their dole from the Labour Bureau, said Miss Brodie.
4: Something about the sight of these men queuing up yeah. scares Sandy and she suddenly um, decides to break away from the group at that yeah. point and she doesn't go to tea with Miss Brady she goes home and actually I think she goes home to write it's almost as if um, to record it yeah exactly it's, it feels like a almost an autobiographical moment of Muriel realising that's a way to cope with the world when you're when you're unsettled by it well Alan at this point where Sandy leaves the rest of the group maybe this feels like a good moment for us to wind up our conversation today and I wonder, just to finish, how do you remember Muriel and how would you like people to remember her? You have a wonderful line in, um, in Appointment in Arezzo when you say, in her, the cold, gray porridgey northern light clashed with the blinding sunshine and citrus shades of the south.
3: Well, I mean, the first thing I would say is I miss her every day and um, that's a very peculiar thing to say about somebody who's not a relative, but In in many respects, Muriel is formative to me as Scotland was to her and Edinburgh was to her, that she kind of taught me what is required to be a writer. Obviously not a writer as great as Muriel Spark, but if you want to be a writer, uh, you can do a lot worse than read Muriel Spark, just her work and about her life. And the other thing to say about her is she was fun personified, there was a gaiety about her that is hard to define. A drink at six o'clock, dinner, lunch, a car visit to a gallery or a church. Every day was a day that was going to be enhanced if you were in the company of Muriel Spark. And all we can do now is be in the company of her novels. Um,
4: and that's, that's okay, you know. <laughs> uh, few people have left such a rich legacy, I think. You write that whenever I want to hear her speak I open a page at random of any of her novels and there she is, loud and clear, note perfect
3: Yeah, I, and I, I do that
4: quite often open at a page and I think oh, well, I wish I could have written that sentence <laughs> Well Alan, thank you so much for joining us today it's been such a joy walking the streets of Edinburgh with you and hearing about Muriel and, and discussing the book with you you've really brought it to life for our listeners so thank you very much for joining us oh, today
3: Thanks very much for asking, Henry
4: Many thanks to Alan Taylor, Lynn MacLeod and the University of Edinburgh, to Canongate Books and the Estate of Muriel Spark for the clips of Miriam Margulies reading the novel, and to our kind partners, Penguin Classics. I'm Henry Elliott, the producer is Andrea Rangecroft, and the music is by Don Gould. If you enjoyed this episode of On the Road, please spread the word and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And finally, I'll leave you with this. After the main action of the novel, Sandy Stranger converts to Catholicism and becomes a nun with the name Sister Helena of the Transfiguration. She is named partly after her unexpectedly popular book on psychology called The Transfiguration of the Commonplace. As Candia McWilliam points out in her introduction, this could be an alternative title for Spark's own novel. The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie takes elements of autobiography and snippets of the commonplace and transfigures them into something cosmic and profound. When Miss Brodie hears that Sandy has become a nun and gone to a convent, she says, what a waste. That is not the sort of dedication I meant. Do you think she has done this to annoy me? I begin to wonder if it was not Sandy who betrayed me.